Welcome to Historias, the Spanish History Podcast. I'm Foster Chamberlain. Today, I'm joined here in Chicago at the 2019 Conference of the American Historical Association by the historian Daniel Hershenzon, an associate professor in literatures, cultures, and languages at the University of Connecticut. Today we're going to be talking about patterns of captivity, slavery, and ransom across the empires of the early modern Mediterranean, concentrating on the interwoven stories of a few captives that feature in Daniel's new book, The Captive Sea, Slavery, Communication, and Commerce in Early Modern Spain and the Mediterranean, out just last year from University of Pennsylvania Press. So Daniel, welcome to the program. Thank you for having me here. I thought we might start out by just looking at some of the basics about how captivity, slavery, ransoming worked in the uh, early modern Mediterranean. Maybe you could tell us a little bit about how these captives were taken and how widespread this practice was of holding captives as slaves. Captivity and slavery in the early modern Mediterranean were, were huge. Uh, I would say that slavery was the main interface between uh, the Ottomans and the Spaniards. Scholars estimate that between the beginning of the 16th century and the, and the, end, of this, of the end of the 18th, between two to three million Muslims and Christians were taken captive and enslaved. And even if these uh, estimations are uh, inflated, even if we cut the number in half, still we're talking about a huge figure that compares to the Atlantic world in terms of uh, numbers in, in, in the first two centuries of the, of the slave trade in the Atlantic. And captives were taken either by, by pirates at the high seas or during raids on the coastal communities of, of the Mediterranean, uh, on the northern side, uh, Spain, Portugal, France, Italy, or the islands, or on the North African side with like uh, Mallorcan, Spaniard, Italian, Maltese, uh, Corsairs attacking them. Apart from that, Spain and Portugal had a number of, uh, of garrisons in North Africa, and Spaniards would, would, or would conduct skirmishes uh, during which they caught a large number of captives. In fact, Oran and other Spanish North African posts were the main conduit of Maghrebi slaves to Spain in, in that period. I think that the image that we often have in our mind, at least in this country, is the chattel slavery that was the norm in the Americas, but the, but the system in the Mediterranean, I understand, was uh, quite different. So I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about what some of those differences were and if there were any contrast between slavery in, in Christian Europe and Muslim North Africa. So this is, this is a great point. I mean, we, we are so much accustomed to thinking about slavery through the prism of Atlantic slavery. And Atlantic slavery is so radically different from most other slavery systems across the world uh, that it's really a bad model to think about slavery with. Let me try and give you a sense of how different it was. And slaves, in Muslim and Christian slaves in the Mediterranean and a few Jewish slaves always had the potential, they, they could always potentially communicate with their kins back home. Uh, so slaves wrote back home and received messages from kin. This is something that does not happen in the Atlantic, and it doesn't, and it, I should say that, I mean, I, I think we can talk about a model of Mediterranean slavery that refers to Muslims, Christians, and Jews, but does not refer to sub-Saharan Africans that were enslaved in the Mediterranean. And the key to understanding this, dif this difference is distance. The Mediterranean was small with intensive circulation across it, so it was easy to send messages from North Africa to Spain, France, or Italy, and vice versa, it was impossible to send them to Sub-Saharan 
Africa. So slaves wrote back home and received messages. There were embassies, there were churches, there were religious communities, uh, there were shared languages. These are some of the features that, that makes this slavery so different. Perhaps the main feature that, that makes it radically different is that slaves in the Mediterranean, even if only a minority ended up returning home after uh, being ransomed or fleeing, the potential was always there. You could always potentially return home. Mm-hmm. And that's a ma- that this is a major difference. And actually, I will add one more as I'm speaking and remembering. Additional differences. Slavery in the Mediterranean is a, re- is a religiously based relation as opposed to the Atlantic world where it, where it is a racially based relationship. Right. So the commodity that slaves were in the Mediterranean could change their nature by converting. Uh, so this is one thing that opened possibilities to slaves that didn't exist in the Atlantic world. But even without converting, slaves could be incorporated into their uh, household, into their master's household, or develop pretty exceptional careers in some cases, things that were completely un- unthinkable in, in the Atlantic context. I think one of the things that you really bring out in your book is the way that this slavery system actually kind of tied the Mediterranean together, and also the the ransoming practices, the way in which sometimes these slaves could obtain their their freedom once again and, and return to where they were from. So could you give us a general sense of, uh, of how this ransoming practice worked and whether or not it was usually successful? Let me, let me just say one thing before mm-hmm. I answer directly the question. Captivity is a disruptive phenomenon, obviously. It, it disrupts the life of those lost their liberty and the ransom of Christians from the Muslim Maghreb or of Muslims from the Christ, from Christian Europe in a way is you know is the separation right Christian here and Muslims there so we we can think both about the enslavement of people in this context and the ransom as as a phenomenon that separates the divide but actually as you said I mean ransom unintentionally created a host of unexpected links that, that brought together, I'm focusing on Spain, but the truth, all, the, the same holds truth for Italy, France, Portugal, with North Africa, with Moroccan, uh, with Morocco, or Ottoman Algiers, or Ottoman Tunis, and Ottoman Libya. And ransom was, was a system basically that meant that enslaved captives could uh, arrange their, their liberty, they could buy their liberty. In broad brush strokes, we can distinguish two kinds of agents that engage in ransom. Friars, ecclesiastics, actually three or four uh, friars, ecclesiastics, religious orders, mostly on the Christian side, and mm-hmm. the most famous were the Trinitarians and the Mercedarians, merchants, Christian merchants, but also North African Jews and Muslims, family members that also participated in the process, and rulers that sometimes negotiated such, such deals, especially when it concerned uh, captured soldiers. So we'll take a short pause here and then we will look at a little bit more detail about different groups that were part of the, of the ransoming process.
I thought we could now turn to looking a little bit more closely at these four different actors that you outlined in the ransoming process. So maybe the most famous of these is these religious orders, the Trinitarians and the Mercenarians. So how did these two uh, orders come about and what was the way in which they operated in this ransoming process? So just to repeat, so we're talking about friars, merchants, uh, family members and rulers. Mm -hmm. And let me also say that each of these actors hints at a different way of understanding what captivity is. So the friars, Trinitarians and Mercedarians, the members of two religious orders established at the turn of the 13th century, mostly to run some captives in Iberia, but also in, in, in Jerusalem. The friars organized uh, large redemption expeditions that reached the Maghreb once, or in average, once in every three years. They prepare them a long time in advance, collecting alms, circulating ads about them, contacting kin, uh, receiving money from different uh, royal councils, and ransoming between 100 to several hundred captives in each of these cases. Now, ransom for the friars was not about manumission. It wasn't a business, it was the redemption of souls. It was the redemption of souls based on a sense of obligation towards uh, a member of, of one's confessional community. Mm -hmm. So here we are talking about a religious phenomenon. So that's one thing, I think, to think about the friars. That doesn't mean that they didn't engage in economic practices, importing South American silver, uh, clothing, hats. Spanish hats were super popular in North Africa. And in some cases, bringing with them from Spain to North Africa, Muslims enslaved in Spain to exchange them with Christians enslaved in North Africa. This is, I wouldn't say, one of the main actors in the Spanish context. Another thing about the Trinitarians and the Mercedarians is that they're very, they're very famous. I mean, they're, they're sort of our main window to understand the phenomenon of captivity in, in, in Spain, partly because they left serial records beginning from the last uh, quarter of the 16th century and that makes their study super easy you know it just goes to the archive today it's dig digitalized and the series is just there with like every few years you have bundles of documents that, that describe the expeditions and everything and we tend to take for granted that ransom that redemption of captives through the through the the orders was an uncontested thing in Spain mm -hmm. but actually people constantly criticized this project the project of the project of redeeming captives in return for money arbitristas were offering projects alternative projects to to redemption you know for example establishing a flotilla taking it to Spain and bombarding Algiers people were claiming that by redeeming captives Christians were inflating the, 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 the prices of the captive and were encouraging Maghrebis to capture more captives. A different kind of critic was that uh, by redeeming captives, contami morally contaminated captives, the friars were introducing homosexuality and whatnot into Spain. Another claim that was made was that the friars are forced to buy only the old, sick and meek rather than the young, healthy and strong. So in that case, not only they didn't participate in the imperial project, they, they even like damaged it in a way. And the friars responded to these claims. So how did they respond to those attacks? I don't know if you can post an image in... Yes. Mm -hmm. So, you know, one of the, there is an image of a triptide from, from Valladolid from the turn of the 17th century that shows uh, Mercedarians 
negotiating the ransom of captives with a Turk sitting on a cushion. There is a table between them with a pile of uh, coins, with a huge pile of coins. The greedy Turk is unhappy and the mercedarians are adding money to the pile. Mm -hmm. Behind the Turk, there is a black slave and three Christian captives. They clearly suffer. And... You know, this was a visual element that the Mercedarians and Trinitarians and similar things used to, to encourage the, the believers to contribute alms to the, to the project of redemption. It portrayed the Mercedarians as the, the, the only alternative for freedom for the captives. They were, they were risking their life there. But if you look carefully at the picture, you see that the captive, I mean, they are miserable, they are, you know, but they're also in the prime of their life. They're strong, they're healthy, they're muscly. And uh, so in that sense, I mean, I would say that it's an argument that the friars are making, hey, we are actually, we do participate in the imperial project. We redeem the best. Right. And uh, we, don't, we don't only redeem the old and the sick as, you, as, you, as all of you guys are claiming. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, so this is just one example to think about, about the, the counterclaims that they were making. Or alternatively, they were showing their counting book to say, oh, no, actually the prices we buy them are much cheaper than, than what you're claiming. <laughs> uh, so they knew how to talk the talk of rationality and economics uh -huh. and against their, so it's not as if if they were only religious actors you know they could play the other game too i think i think that's what's really interesting about your book is you you bring out how these religious orders are part of this larger system of of debate and exchange in the in the mediterranean and then also bring out how they weren't the only actors in this ransoming process so maybe you could tell us a little bit about these, um, how these other actors fit in as well, the merchants and the family members and the rulers. Right, so on the other hand, we have the merchants, and you know that's already suggests to us, oh, here captivity is all about business, you know, mm -hmm. we want to make quick profits by ransoming captives, by cutting our share from the deal. But merchants were also employing the discourse of redemption, uh, because in principle, trade with the infidel was illegal. Uh, Spaniards were not allowed to commerce in North Africa. They had to apply for a special permit that was limited in time and space. Whenever they did so, whenever they applied, they explained that they were doing this to redeem Christian souls. So the king approved this only on the basis of this. The, the king bestowed ad hoc permits only on the basis of this uh, promise. Uh, at, the same, at the same time, the king always cut a 10% of the money exchange in these deals. Okay. So the king, also, the king also had an interest in the game while he was reciting canon law and all the prohibitions about, uh, about commerce with the infidel. So this is on the side of the merchants. And that often, by the way, on the one hand, merchants and friars competed, constantly competed. On the other hand, they also collaborated in many instances. Mm -hmm. And then you have family members. When a widow, you know, pays the money she diligently collected to rescue her son, she is engaging in an economic transaction, but clearly she is not an economic act. She is there to save her son, her only son. So this is another way we can criticize, you know, an economic an economic reduction of this very uh -huh. very uh, rich phenomenon. And then you have uh, rulers. Let's think about it from the Muslim perspective. The Moroccan Sultan is becoming stronger and stronger since the last third of the 17th century, a new Moroccan uh, dynasty. The Sultans do whatever they can to ransom Muslims enslaved in Spain. And they impose on the Spaniards exchange rates of 10 Muslims for every Christian or huge amounts of money for, for Muslim soldiers. 
And when rulers save their subjects, they are claiming sovereignty. They are making claims about uh, religious guardianship. In the specific context of the Moroccan Sultan making such claims, we can think about it on the Mediterranean level and, you know, he making competing claims to the one uh, the Ottoman Sultan is making, even though obviously the Ottomans were far stronger than the Moroccans, yet we can also read it in this context. So I think it's really important to not to reduce uh, captivity in this case, captivity and slavery, to its religious dimensions, to its social dimensions, to its political... It's, it's really a, a multifaceted problem. Another thing that you point out is that the period that you focus on is the late 16th century um, going into the beginning of the 17th, but usually when we're presented with the narrative of Mediterranean history, the focus is earlier in the, in the 16th century and the, the Battle of Lepanto is presented as the, as the culmination of that. But do you think looking at a little bit later period, we actually see a continuation of, the, of this kind of rivalry between these two empires? This is, this is a, great, a great point because the two main narratives that we historians tell ourselves about the early modern Mediterranean, <laughs> uh-huh. one is the, the forgotten frontier, that the idea that uh, the 16th century, during the 16th century, the Mediterranean turned into a sterile space where nothing happened. And the other one is the, nor- the northern invasion, mm-hmm. uh, the idea according to which at the turn of the 16th century, Dutch, English, French uh, intruded the Mediterranean, transforming modernizing it, transforming an imperial space into into an economic sphere, substituting economy and imperial rivalry with like economic rationality, rationality, etc. Now, the Northerns invaded the sea, that's a fact. We see them all over in in, in Italian, in French, in North Africa, and in, in Spanish archives. The question is, what does it mean? And the story of modern modernization is too easy. It's it's the same story we always hear of a north modernizing the south, right. pick a south, any south, the Mesojono, Andalusia, Morocco, whatever. Mm-hmm. When you look at Ransom, first you see that local actors continue to be extremely influential, local you know, Jews, Muslims, Spaniards, Italians. You see that religious violence continue to be practiced, continue to shape economic value. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you cannot t- talk about the modernization of the sea. A few years after the Battle of Lepanto and the signing of a a truce between the Ottomans and the Spaniards, the empires relatively turned their back to the sea, but the unexpected effects of this decision was to intensify connections between South and North, between Christians and, and Muslims. And in connections, I also include violent connections, obviously. But all sorts of links were established at that moment was supposed to, to create an end mm-hmm. of, of interaction and communication. Okay, so we'll take another pause here. And then when we come back, we'll look at the story of one case of an att- attempted ran- ransom exchange and see how that brings out some of the dynamics that we've been talking about. Okay, so now I wanted to turn to a specific example that you focus on in your book of one of these attempted ransom exchange. So in 1608, 
you look at the story of an Algerian girl who was captured, Fatima, and then also, also a group of Trinitarian friars led by Bernardo de Monroy who were captured and how these stories became intertwined. So can you summarize for us how this happened? Right, so in the last chapter I, I changed to a more intimate scale focusing on, on one case, the entire chapter, to, to understand better the dynamics that, that the book is, is exploring. And I'm looking at a case of three groups or, or individuals that were captured in the last two years of the first decade of the 17th century. The first is Fatima, a 13-year-old 13, 13 Algerian girl, the daughter of a high uh, Ottoman official, a Yanissary. The precise circumstances of her capture are not fully clear, but it seems that she, together with a group of other children, uh, were traveling across the sea, captured by Genoese fleet. She was sold in Livorno to slavery to a Jewish couple. She sent the word about her enslavement back home, and her father negotiated her ransom. He, he paid a Corsican merchant whose renegade brothers traded on a regular basis with Algiers to, to rescue his daughter and return her to the city. So this is one story. Another story that happens more or less at the same time, apparently separated from it, but as we'll soon see uh, tied to it, is that of Bernardo de Monroy and the Trinitarians that, that just arrived in Algiers to ransom captives. They knew nothing about Fatima. They paid uh, the ransom fee for 136 captives. They were about to board their ships when suddenly the Algerian divan, the, the governing council, ordered uh, their arrest. Another case seemingly unrelated is that of uh, Diego de Pacheco, the bastard son of uh, the Marquis de Vigena, that was captured at some point, taken to Algiers, uh, tried to negotiate, unsuccessfully tried to negotiate his ransom, was taken from there to Istanbul, and once he sort of like gave up on the on the hopes of, of returning home, he converted uh, to Islam and he died in Istanbul as a Muslim. And the last case from 1609, uh, of the Pasha of Alexandria, captured by the Sicilian squadron of Spain. Uh, this was the second time the Pasha was, was captured, this time with his two wives and a uh, large uh, entourage. So these seemingly four unrelated stories uh, actually uh, become connected through negotiations over ransom or through revenge for the conversion of one of the of the person involved. And what happened was that on the way back to Algiers, um, the captain stopped in uh, Corsica. There, the bishop saw Fatima and just felt that she was she was meant to be Christian. Uh, Fatima was converted. She was baptized as Madalena. Once, once Christian, I mean, she she was not a commodity anymore. She was a community member, and as a community member, she cannot be sold to Muslims. And the bishop refused to allow her to board the ship and return to Algiers. So the Corsican merchant responsible for a ransom had to deliver the sad news to Algiers, and in response to that, the divan ordered the arrest of the Trinitarians. All right, how is the Pasha of Alexandria and Diego de Pacheco, the bastard son of the Marquis de Vigena, related? So the Trinitarians begin writing the entire world, you know, ransom us. And, uh, they write to the king, the king, Gen Genova, Gen Genoa at the time is, is a Spanish satellite. It's independent, but it's part of the Spanish empire. De facto, it, it funds the empire. It fights for the empire. The Spanish king does all he can to pressure Genoa to pressure Corsica, which is a Genoese colony, to repatriate Fatima Madalena. 
but that doesn't work because she converted. Right. So first, this is this tells us something about the system of of captivity in the Mediterranean. Captivity in the Mediterranean is these are mechanisms for the insertion of of people into networks of exchange, but. There were complementary mechanisms in this system for the removal of people from networks of exchange. And conversion was one of them. Mm-hmm. Once people were converted, they, they became rehumanized commodi- commodities. Yeah. And uh, they were not commodities anymore. They were again humans. Uh, so this is the case of uh, Fatima. The Trinitarians in Algiers received the word about the arrest of the Pasha of Alessandria in Sicily. And they see an opportunity. They see an opportunity for their ransom in return for the Pasha. The thing is that there is a market there and they are competing against the Marquis de Vigena that hopes to keep the Pasha to use him to, to exchange him in return for his son, for Diego de Pacheco. So two coalitions are forming in Madrid. The most powerful people, people of the realm are trying to convince the king to give the Pasha either to the Marquis de Vigena or to Monroe and the Trinitarians. The end of the story is sad. Pasha dies in his prison cell and none of the parties could use him. Diego de Pacheco dies in, in, in Istanbul. The Trinitarians never return home and die in their prison cells in Algiers. And Fatima, we know nothing about Fatima. And this is also an interesting question. I mean, the differences between gender differences between women and men in this system and also between the representa- their representations. Monroy, the Trinitarian that was arrested in response mm-hmm. to Fatima's conversion, wrote excessively. We have so much text that this person produced. He wrote notes to other captives and to renegades and sent letters to the Spanish garrisons in North Africa. And he wrote to the Trinitarians and these letters were published and, and whatnot. He, and he was a slave. Right. He was an enslaved captive. Fatima was a freed person, and we know nothing about her. We, we know that she was married to a Christian uh, seven or eight years after her conversion in Corsica. There are two or three petitions in the Spanish archive from the same time, more or less, of a woman, an Algerian woman who converted in Rome, who claims to be Fatima's mother, Mm. and she asked the Spanish king to assist her to reunite with her daughter. But Fatima remains mute. She doesn't, we we, we don't hear her anymore. We just hear people talking about her. This is despite her freedom, and and it stands out, especially when you compare it to to Monroy's um, Monroy's arrest. Yeah, so I I thought there were a couple of other themes that you write about that this story really brings out. We could could talk about a little more. Yeah, I mean, I I I want to introduce another, another one of these themes. So religious violence, by which I mean the conversion of people by force or by some degree of force, Mm -hmm. the secretion of bodies, forced baptisms, was a structural element of the system. It was an element of the system that the parties employed to negotiate the the norms of the system. And they did so constantly complaining about the violation of those norms. When I say the norms, I mean there were agreed norms regarding the rights, the privileges that slaves should receive, the religious privileges. Christians and Muslims agreed that slaves should not be converted by force or baptized by force. They should be buried according to their to their custom. And even they should receive burial spaces where they could bury their dead. And there was also the question of prayer spaces, churches that's, that Christians had in North Africa, and mosques that in some cases Muslims had 
in, in, in Christian Europe. But both parties constantly violated the norms. <laughs> uh, so this is what anthropologists called uh, negative reciprocity rather than positive reciprocity. Mm -hmm. You elevate the price with each exchange. You converted Fatima in Corsica, we are going to capture three priests here. And you, you would expect that this negative reciprocity leads to nowhere positive, but I mean, I think we have science at least to speculate about the possibility that negative reciprocity turned into positive one. That these violent instances were used to codify the privileges that, state deserve, that the slaves deserve. Through constant violations of, of these norms, slowly the norms were codified. And to the degree that towards the end of the 17th century, the Spanish king, and that happens several times, but by the end of the 17th century, he issues orders to the governors of all his uh, Mediterranean territories to stop desecrating bodies of Muslim slaves and to <laughs> allocate burial spaces to Muslims. So in, in post-Morisco expulsion, a century after the, Morisco, the expulsion of the Moriscos, the Spanish king uh, allows and, and, and formalizes Muslim cemeteries across his Mediterranean territories. And in, this, in the 18th century, going a step further, in the 18th mm -hmm. century, we see a mosque in Cartagena operating, serving the Muslim slaves there. And when Christians try to, uh, when Christians break in and break the lambs and, and wreak havoc, the slaves ride back home and the Algerian Pasha issues a warning that if the situation won't be immediately amended, uh, Christians from Cartagena in Algeria would suffer there, the churches would be closed, the churches that currently the Christians are benefiting of would be closed and he would destroy all the images that you will find there. And the Christian took this warning very seriously and for a few decades the, the mosque remained in place and you had a living mosque in Cartagena right. in the 18th century. So I think this is another important aspect of the system mm -hmm. that I wanted to, to bring in. What's amazing to me is the way that the, the religious component is, is important kind of in and, in and of itself, you know, that there's a real interest in maintaining those mosques, but then it can also be part of the political or economic dynamics. And to return to the case of Fatima, I mean, of course, she was a girl, so she might not have really known what she was doing, but you, you mentioned other cases as well where you have people who convert to the other religion and gain certain benefits, but then also, in a sense, take it themselves out of the running in terms of being able to be exchanged back to their home country. So I'm wondering what some of the reasons why people would actually convert and if there was still any kind of negotiation that they could make even once they had ostensibly converted to the other religion. Right, so people converted for all sorts of reasons and you know, one of them was because of brute force. Uh, in some cases people were forced to convert or mm -hmm. baptized by force. In other cases, in the other extreme, people saw the light. <laughs> and you know, we cannot, we cannot deny that that might have happened right. more than once. And in between you have a spectrum of, of, of different interests. Conversion even if not immediately, it didn't entail manumission, not on the Muslim or the Christian side, mm -hmm. but it did over time provided more freedom, allowed for developing different sorts of careers. You know, people were not uh, employed as, as slaves, I mean, they had more rights, etc., 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 more privileges. As you said, conversion most of the time meant severing 
one's relations to his home community. Not completely, because we have letters of uh, Spanish renegades, of Spaniards that converted to Islam and remained in North Africa, mm -hmm. writing to their kin. We have cases of kin, of, of Spaniards visiting their converted kin in Algiers or in, in Tetuano, in other cities, commercing with them. So renegades also use their position, act as commercial intermediaries. I mean, you know, it's not as if there were tons of such cases, but there were enough such cases to suggest that this was a significant uh, phenomenon. Another thing that you've mentioned several times is this letter writing back and forth from these captives. And we saw that in the, you mentioned in the case of the, uh, of the Trinitarians who were held captive in Algiers. So I'm wondering, aside from communicating with family members, if there was any political importance that could be attached to this communication back and forth. So this goes back to the first or second question that you asked. What, what is the difference between slavery in the Mediterranean and slavery in the Atlantic? And mm -hmm. I would say that slavery in the Mediterranean was also a system, it wasn't only a system of, of labor, of forced labor, it was also a system of com communication. The, the, the initial reason for which slaves wrote so much was because their masters wanted, or in some cases masters wanted them to write back home report about their place of enslavement, tell their family or the king how much money their master was expecting to receive for their ransom, etc. But, I mean, beyond that goal, letters circulated and, and, and filled in many other functions. Communication with one's beloved, sending political strategic information, so intelligence of all sorts, commercial information, also slaves that were not expected to be ransomed still wanted to have what they perceived as their religious privilege, what we just spoke about. Mm -hmm. And whenever they felt that those privileges were violated, they wrote back home and say, ruler, take care of us. I mean, right. I was this, my friend was baptized by force or something like that. So writing was, was a huge deal, was a huge part of captivity, and it's something that we see again and again and again. And we also see, we see Christian captives writing, um, marking inverted commas yes. with my hands, marking letters of recommendation for Christians who converted to Islam and who either wanted to go back home or, or were afraid to be captured by Spanish fleets. And these people mm -hmm. knew that they would have to face the Inquisition and account for their conversion. And they were hoping, and rightly so, that those letters of recommendation that usually stated so-and-so converted, but deep in his heart, remain a Christian and was engaged and engaged in good deeds, supporting other Christians around and always wanted to return to Christianity, blah, blah, blah. And these letters are fascinating. We can read them in two ways. One is pretend that we are inquisi inquisitors mm -hmm. and try to figure if the person about which the letter of recommendation is talking, was it true Christian or actually a converted, or converted to Islam? And I gave up on this. Second. I, mean, yeah. I, I just don't have the inquisitorial abilities. <laughs> so in that way is to try and like ground the letter in its in, in the social system that produces it, and mm -hmm. try to think about its social effects, etc., etc., etc. And you see that cap such letters position captives as legal witnesses. So slaves that you know, dead thing as, as, as jurists defined them in the early modern period, dead bodies, actually were legal personas with the power to decide if a person was a Christian or a Muslim, 
a power that entailed that their wars could have excluded that person from his own community or allow him to remain a member of his own community. Such letters were also objects of exchange. Captive wrote such letter and gave it to a renegade in return for good deeds, which meant you know, extended food portions, more freedom, and perhaps helped in, in staging escape. So they were also objects of exchange. There is a system of exchange here in which written documents circulate in return for favors. Uh, in at least one case, the Inquisition writes back to verify the identity of the letter writer, which means that such letters allow the Inquisition to participate in the establishment of social hierarchies in the Maghreb, because the Inquisition was was interested to know what was the ecclesiastic degree of the person writing the letter. So there was a hierarchy of letter writers, and institutions in Spain receive a foothold in the Maghreb through the practice of, of, of such letters. So mm-hmm. this is just one example focusing on one genre of letters and, and you know, thinking about how it, it linked um, North Africa and Europe and, and how it socially operated among captives. So I I thought just to conclude our program, I was wondering if you could summarize for us the perspective that you bring to this discussion of captivity and slavery in the early modern Mediterranean, looking at both sides of the exchange in, in Spain and in North Africa. What new do we learn about this relationship? One important claim that I'm making is that slavery was a system of, of communication, and it's not how we usually think about slavery. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I think that, that that's one way in which the book opens questions that could could be applied to other contexts right. uh, and I know that people have been do, pe- people have been asking similar questions also in the in the Caribbean uh, context but but again I think this was much more intense in the Mediterranean Com- from a completely different perspective I, I envisioned the book as an attempt to think about what I call region formation in the Western Mediterranean I mean, an attempt to think about how Mediterranean links connections relations came more dense or to the contrary. So thinking about integration and disintegration uh, and thinking about it not as a a national project, a Spanish project, redemption or Algerian project or whatever, Mm -hmm. but rather as the result, the unintended result mostly of the interactions between several political projects, Algerian, Moroccan, Spanish, and the interactions of this project with small-scale actors from below, merchants, friars, captives, family members, who often, they were the ones that operated political dynamics on, on the highest echelons, right? right. I mean, so, you know, in, in, in what we might call uh, diplomacy from below. So, rigid formation is, is, is another way of considering of, of, of this book, and I think that one, one, one thing it shows is that whereas, uh, you know, we would have expected to envision the Mediterranean as a sterile space in the 7th century, we actually see a sea of connections. Thank you for listening to this episode of Historias. For additional information about our guest and a list of suggested readings, please visit our website at historiaspodcast.org. Also be sure to subscribe on iTunes or Google Play and to follow us on Facebook or Twitter so that you can be notified of new episodes.